This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Okay, we're going to look at the reliability of Scripture. And we had already gotten into this uh, last week. Here we go. Just bear with me. We had gotten into this last week, and uh, a couple things that we talked about, just as a review, is we started with where did the Bible come from? Where did the Bible come from? And uh, the Bible, we said, came from God by the Holy Spirit through men to humankind, okay? And uh, as we looked at that, we came up, or we presented some criteria for canonicity. And if you remember that criteria for canonicity, I said there were four things. One, apostolic origin. And, and, and maybe I was unclear on some things that I said that it, uh, it had to be, it was written by an apostle or even their close friends. And the reason why I say they're close friends is you can look at the New Testament specifically and you could say, well, weren't they all apostles? Well, what are the criteria for an apostle? You had to be an eyewitness. You had to be sent by Jesus Christ. And, and there's a couple in there that we just don't know. For example, two of them, and maybe a third, Mark and Luke. Mark and Luke were not disciples. Luke, Mark, they traveled with Paul. Now, Paul, we could... We could get into a lot of discussion on whether Paul was sent, but I believe the road to Damascus put that to rest, that he was sent. Uh, he had a, he had a, he was, he, he was, he was confronted. And then he was sent. And he was appointed. And he even says, I am one out of, as, that was born out of due time. And so the apostle Paul, which that's what often has been called, Paul, I, I believe, was sent, and, 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 and this is one of those interesting things where just looking at Paul's age, and I think I may have said this last week, looking at Paul's age and looking at Paul's status in the Sanhedrin, he probably was there at the, at the crucifixion. He probably witnessed it. May even have had a, a hand in that. And I don't want to accuse him of anything that may not have happened, but uh, uh, Paul did say he was the chiefest of sinners, uh, and I know who I am, uh, so... <laughs> He, he, he wasn't a great guy. But then we don't know who the author of Hebrews was. We don't know. I mean, I have an opinion on it, and, uh, and I believe it was Paul. Uh, but we don't know. We don't know. I can't say that as a matter of fact, that it was, it was Paul. And so we don't know who wrote that book. Uh, so I, that's why I say it, was, it could be their close friends. Uh, so the, but there was apostolic authority, if you will. Universal acceptance, we've looked at that, liturgical use, this was with, the scriptures were what were used in the, that early church, and it had a consistent message. Those were the criteria for canonicity. But as we look at this today, this evening, we're going to move into how should Christians use scripture and apologetics? How should we, how should we use it to make the, the arguments, if we can continue to call it that? How do we employ the scriptures in such a way? And we're really, we're doing this because we want to be evangelistic. This isn't, again, going back to the very first class, this isn't to win the argument. But we do want to use the scripture. Now, 
up till this, up till last week, really, but up until this topic on the reliability of scriptures, I have really emphasized that natural revelation. And I've even said that I, and I, I, I'm a believer that one of those things of natural revelation is, is the ability for us to rationally think. And if you remember, I said last week, that only gets you so close. You still need special revelation. And as we look into this special revelation, as we look at it now, we are, we, we're going to, I hope this will be logical, but we are going to leave the logical arguments behind. And now we are going to rest on the authority of Scripture. Now, you might ask and say, well, Tavis, isn't that backwards? Shouldn't we rest on the authority of Scripture first and then think logically? I think it's simultaneous. I think the Bible is logical. The Bible uses words. The Bible, let's, let's even go further than that. The Bible uses letters, puts them in certain orders, puts them into words, puts them in, the, in a certain way, in a certain syntax and grammar that has, to have, that has to communicate to us. We have to use our brains to even read the Word of God. And so we, use, we have to think. We were made to think. And so we can now, though, because we think, we can use the Bible. And, it, and, and, and we can rely on it, and we can depend on it, and we can lean on it. And we should use it in apologetics. And here's how. Christians' ultimate authority is the Word of God. As we have discussed, ultimately as Christians, we do not rely only on our reason, but on God's revelation of himself through the word of Scripture, the Bible. And through the word made flesh, that's Jesus Christ. Christians accept, accept God's revelation of himself through faith. Faith is essential. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. We come to God through faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2 says we are saved by grace through faith. Now, Christians do not put their faith in the Bible to save them. as if the Bible was God himself. But Christians put their faith in the author of the Bible, our Savior, Jesus, and believe the Bible to be true because God, it is God's word to us. As God's word, the Bible is the ultimate standard of truth. When praying that the Father would sanctify the disciples in truth, Jesus said in John 17, 17, that thy word is truth. As the truth with a capital T, the word of God stands in judgment on every other truth claim and assertion in the universe. One of faithful obedience. This is what God said, and this is what he wants us to know. Is this everything? That God knows? No. Even John told us that the books cannot contain it. 
So we, Christians' ultimate authority is the word of God. But non-Christians, they do not recognize the authority of the word of God. We're going to talk a little bit, we're going to camp out here. This is where I see some danger in where we go, even as Christians. Uh, and uh, uh, there are people who are friendly to Christianity. There are people who are, uh, are sympathetic. But I think sometimes we mistake as Christians sympathetic to Christianity with sympathetic to religious freedom. And we, we, we kind of put our confidence and our trust in politicians. But the Bible still says, if they are not for us, they are against us. Christians do not recognize the authority of the word of God. Of course, however, non-believers do not at all share their, this viewpoint. They don't, they, non-believers aren't going to say, yeah, I don't, you're right, I don't trust, the, I don't, I don't, I don't recognize the authority. They're not going to they're going to agree with this. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that far from being neutral in their attitude towards scripture though, that non-Christians, listen to this, non-Christians actively oppose and can I even say it this way? Non-Christians, even the most benign, hate the truth of scripture. Why? Romans 8:7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Non-Christians are unable to submit to Scripture because they are opposed to the truth of God's word. They are hostile to God. And you say, no, 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 I have some friends who like me. I have some, I have, I, you know, I, we've had, I won't use names, I'll just say positions. We've had politicians, we've had presidents who are very friendly to us. They are, but if they deny that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, they aren't trusting God's word. So they can be friendly, they can be sympathetic, but they are saying, I don't believe it. In Romans 1, verse 20, we learn for the invisible things, we've looked at this verse before, but let me read it again. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. John 3, verses 19 through 20 says, And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Non-Christians do not want to know the light of God's word. If they did, if they wanted to know, the Bible says they, if you seek the truth, you'll find it. If they really wanted to, if they said, you know, I really do believe it, then they would believe it. That's who you're dealing with. Now, there's no need to be hostile about it. I mean, I would not start the conversation with, you liar, you God-hater. I have five children. I had to think again that I have five. 
Four of them have made a profession of faith. I do, uh, we could get into the arguments about accountability, but I have a fifth one who has not accepted Christ. He's starting to grow and get into his personality. So cute, so adorable. But one day he's going to have to come to the point where he either accepts Christ or rejects him. My other children, they have made a profession of faith, but I do believe that there were times where they were, they were accountable to God. They knew, they had heard the gospel, and they were making a decision on whether they were going to accept him or not. And then finally they accepted. But there was a time when they would have died and gone to hell. Because they were, whether through their actions or maybe, and I don't know what's on in their heart and mind, and I can't judge that, but it, whether it's through their actions or even in their, uh, they, were, they were rejecting him. So you say that about your own children? Yes. If we aren't going to, if, if, if someone's not going to believe what the Bible say, they could be sympathetic to it, they can think it's nice, but if it's, they don't believe it, they don't believe it. Non-Christians do not recognize the authority of the word of God. But Christians should use scripture as part of their Christian apologetics. So we say, well, they're not going to accept it, so why should I even use it? I'm going to explain why. Not only should you use it as part of the Christian apologetics, I hope we'll make the argument there's really nowhere else to go. If our job is to present the consistent veracity and reliability of a Christian worldview, we will find it impossible to do that without drawing on the truth of the Bible. Because what we believe about God is based on the testimony of the Bible. As we explain our worldview, it is completely natural to open up the Bible to explain what we believe and to use Scripture's own arguments for why those beliefs are valid. Listen to what I just said. The Scriptures has its own arguments why did we talk about logic? Because when you open the Bible, why do we talk about argumentation? Because when you open the Bible, the Bible is not just some random throws facts here. It is, con it is congruent. It is coherent. It makes sense. Now, you may not always understand it all, but it doesn't contradict itself. It has a consistent message. I encourage you to bring scripture to bear in your conversations with non-Christians. And here's why. Man, this is going to be, can you see that? I'll read it to you. Using, it's funny because on an iPad, it's real big right there. I, I have no problem looking at it. <laughs> Using scripture challenges the postmodern idea that truth is relative. We are living in a postmodern world. We are dealing with postmodern mindsets. And we talked about that at the very beginning of what that means. But really, if just for sake of review, and if you're watching and you, and you don't remember, uh, or if you're sitting here and you don't remember, it's really that everything is relative. My truth is my truth. But using Scripture challenges the postmodern idea that truth is relative. It rebuts the charge that a Christian's truth narrative does not necessarily apply to a non-Christian friend. Listen, your, this, 
we can say, well, they don't believe, so this doesn't matter to them. They're still going to be held accountable to it because it's true. And that's what they're going to be held accountable to is they're going to be held accountable to the truth. It also demonstrates this ancient text is relevant for life in a postmodern world. For when we appeal to God's word as the final authority, we appeal to an absolute truth. Using scripture challenges the postmodern idea that truth is relative. And that's why the Bible is just chock full of, of, of verses, of, of quotes, saints, however you want to put it, phrases that are, are dogmatic. God is love. That is a statement that you cannot get around and say, well, I don't know what that means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever means whosoever. It's clear. Using Scripture challenges the postmodern idea that truth is relative. Scripture is spiritually powerful. Scripture is spiritually powerful. Remember the verses that we've, I've said it before. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And, and, and it's, those are great verses. But the verse that comes just after that is this. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing wherefore I, or whereto I sent it. The word of God is powerful. And as you're witnessing to someone, as you're talking to someone, you could really start getting into this, the danger of saying, well, man, I just have to convince them. If I could just think of a good way to just talk and, and I just really let the word of God do the talking. Let the word of God speak for itself. There's been many a times as a chaplain in the Navy where I'm on a ship or I'm at sea or I'm, I'm doing a ceremony or a service or something, and I just don't know what to say. And I'll use the scripture. Now, I don't think, and you can disagree, this is my opinion, I don't think that I have to say chapter and verse. This is what the, you know, well, it says in the good book. Neither do I like the other way that a lot of, and I've heard chaplains will say this, they'll give a quote from the Bible, and they'll say, like we would say, for example, four score and seven years ago, and then we'll say, Abraham Lincoln said that, those great words. Well, they'll give great words from the Bible and say, Jesus, as if it's just a random quote. No, we can, though, say, thus saith the Lord. But there's not always the time when I say, hey, I just want to just, I'll give you the chapter and verse, you know, because I, I don't know if they're going to understand that. I just tell them what the scriptures say. 
In fact, there was a, an apologist. His name was Cornelius Van Til. And uh, he, he, was, he passed away a few years ago. But uh, in the 20th century, he was, he was, he was apologetics, a, a reformed guy. Uh, he was really, if we could call it, the father of presuppositional apologetics. And in his apologetics, and in much of his writings... Uh, and he writes on philosophy and other things like that. And a lot of his writings, though, he would write and he would just weave scripture through in and out, just weave it in there. And he never gave a scripture reference. He just knew the scriptures and it just flowed into his writings. In your conversation with people, does scripture just flow through what you're saying? Does it? Does it feed your conversation? And honestly, I'm not saying you have to give citations for it. And put the footnotes in there and say, well, this is where I got it. Just let the word of God speak to you and through you as you share the gospel. It is spiritually powerful. Because Hebrews 4.12, you know this verse, for the word of God is quick. That means alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This word will get deeper into their soul than you ever will with any logical argument. Scripture is spiritually powerful. Scripture contains in many places, this is why you should use it, it argues for itself. Scripture contains in many of its places its own arguments for the validity of its claims. It helps to show non-Christians that we are nowhere expected to accept the claims of Christianity on what is this blind faith, but on the basis of ample evidence and a coherent worldview. And let me give you just an example of how the Bible, I believe, speaks for itself. 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17. You know these verses. Paul's telling Timothy, he says, Hey, in the last days, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, Timothy, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul tacks on to this to Timothy, and he says, Hey, Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, we could stop there, and we could say, Wow, that's a great verse. That's a powerful verse. All scripture is God-breathed. And if you were to stop there, you could really come to some conclusions about what that means. God's word is, or the word of God, scripture, is God-breathed. If it's breathed by God, it must be perfect. If it's breathed by God, it must tell me something. If it's breathed by God, it must be something I should listen to. And we could start making conclusions based upon just the fact that God, this is God-breathed. But Paul doesn't say, hey, we'll figure that out. 
He says, and it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You know what Paul's doing? He's backing up. He's saying, hey, it's God-breathed. Because it's God-breathed, that's the standard. Now measure yourself up to the word of God. He's just repeating again the facts about what inspiration means. He is making a truth claim when he says it's inspired. But then he adds and he says it's for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. The King James uses that word perfect. It means complete, mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You can live by the inspired word of God. And I'm glad Paul goes into that explanation. Not because, man, I really didn't understand what he meant when he said inspired of God. No, I'm glad because, man, he's just making it more and more clear. But inspiration of God carries with that all those implications that Paul lined out for us. The Bible produces valid arguments. So, as Christians, though, as Christian apologists, how then do we explain why we believe the Bible is true? Okay, before we get into this, we need to look at some good vocabulary words. Vocabulary. We got two here. We're going to look up infallible and inerrant. Now, you've probably heard someone say, this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. I held my Bible up. I know you all were thinking, you thought I was going to say, this is my Bible. It is what it says I am. And if you watch Joel Osteen, you'd know the rest. All right? So, but we, we know that this is an infallible and inerrant word of God. And we say, well, what does that mean? Let's look at that. First of all, let's look at this word infallible. Infallible. It means incapable of error. Incapable of error. That is implied in the words, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. If God can breathe out error, is he God? For God who cannot lie. He is, he, if, if it means it's God-breathed, then it has to be infallible. It's incapable of error. You say, well, I believe that, infallible, then what does inerrant mean? Well, it's the cousin word here, maybe brother, sister, I don't know. That means it contains no errors. Well, what's the difference? One, God is incapable of lying, and it is inerrant. Men wrote this down. And we believe that what they wrote was inspired by God, and so what they wrote had no errors in it. These are incredible claims. Not incredible in that I think they're so far, far they're so far fetched that they uh, uh, that they are uh, uh, just too fantastical to believe. But these are incredible claims in that if there, if, if one, if we look and say, well, it, it's, it's infallible, there is some fallibility in it, 
then it can't be God-breathed. And if the scripture is not given by inspiration of God, which it claims that it is, it claims itself, we didn't make that up. We didn't make it up. Paul here says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. If you go into Hebrews, God who at sundry times and sundry manners spake and men moved by the whole, they, they moved and they wrote. We didn't make that up, but if it's coming from God, it has to be infallible. And now we go to that second point that if God is telling them and God is moving them that what they're putting on paper or on parchment or on tablets also contains no errors. We don't have time to get into this this evening. But the last scripture was written almost 2,000 years ago. Do we have the Bible today is the question that maybe we need to ask. You can say, yeah, I mean, that's good that the, I'm glad John was inspired by God, had no error in what he was writing, and he didn't write any errors, but Polycarp was his disciple, and he probably recopied some things. How do we know Polycarp didn't make a mistake? I believe, and we don't have time to get into this doctrine, but I'll say it here and just in passing, that because it is perfect and because it was inspired, I do believe that God will keep that promise and there's a doctrine of preservation. A preservation. That God preserved his word for us. I would enjoy getting into that discussion, but not tonight. So why do Christians believe the Bible is reliable and true? That it is authoritative as God's word. It hinges really on three characteristics. Three characteristics. Let me give them to you real quick and then we'll go through them. The New Testament documents are historically reliable and credible. Why do we believe it's reliable and true? Because we do believe the documents, the New Testament documents are historically reliable and credible. That Jesus' character is shown as trustworthy. That's going to be important. And then Jesus' claim, Jesus claimed that the Old and New Testament books were the word of God. So we look at it and we say, there's a historical reason for Jesus existing. Historically. Jesus had, was a man of character and he's trustworthy. And he said that they were the word of God. So let's look at that. The New Testament documents are historically reliable and credible. Let's start with this first point, the historical reliability of the New Testament documents. The New Testament record agrees perfectly with what we know of history elsewhere. The names of emperors and governors and places and events do not disagree with other sources that we have. The New Testament reads as a historically reliable document. For example, the New Testament text often shows its human authors in a bad light, as a historical account would. It contains events, such as the crucifixion, that are inconvenient for those seeking to project Jesus as the Son of God. And it contains odd bits of details, such as places people stood. In fact, in John 6.10, it gives us the state of grass. It says when he fed the 5,000, they had him sit down because there was much grass there. What a detail. That 
we have these details that have the feel consistent with eyewitness accounts. What I'm trying to say is no historian, if they were an honest historian, would look at these accounts and say, well, it lacks credibility because it just doesn't give enough detail. No, it gives historical detail. And we have relied on less for other details in history. The New Testament has eyewitness of, witnesses of events it describes who were still alive when scholars know that the documents existed. But we do not know of anyone who disputed the factual historical events described in the New Testament. When these men wrote these things, we don't know of anybody who was disputing them. If they did, it didn't, it didn't last, it didn't survive. This includes Jesus' death and his resurrection. In fact, the disciples who wrote large chunks of the New Testament, Paul, John, Peter, gave their lives for the message of the Bible. I don't know, but if I hadn't fabricated a story, I'm not sure I'd die for that. And, and maybe there, I mean, it could happen, I guess. I'm not saying it never happens. But they believed this to be true because of what they saw. In fact, Acts starts that he said he gave them many infallible proofs. If you look at the top right corner, that's the entire lecture series that I have on this is infallible proofs. These are things that you can, for them, that in John, he says it, we touched and we felt, we saw him, we heard him. He was alive. The New Testament has far more and earlier manuscripts than any other ancient text. There's a respected scholar, his name is F.F. Bruce, Bruce, he said this, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Think of it this way. Homer, he wrote around 900 B.C. What did he write? The Iliad, the Odyssey, some of those things that maybe you read them in high school. Some of you, maybe it was written. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, uh, so he wrote these in 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have, though, copy now, not original. We don't have an original Iliad. We don't have an original Odyssey. The original or the, the earliest copy we have is 400 B.C. 400 B.C., and we only have, since then, 643 copies of that. 643. Keep that number in mind. The New Testament was written in A.D. 40 to 100, sometime in that time frame. We're talking almost, uh, well, if 900 B.C., uh, was when uh, Homer wrote, and of course, uh, we're going down our numbers, right? It's almost a thousand years later, the New Testament is written from Homer. The earliest copy we have that exists is 25 AD. But how many copies do we have of manuscripts? 24,000. No one's going to dispute Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. 
It's because it really doesn't matter, I don't think, to Satan or anybody if Homer lasts. I don't think he cares. He will attack the Word of God, though. If the Bible is, in fact, true, then we should expect it to have at least three characteristics. It should have a coherent message, a unity of message. It should have, uh, it should be internally consistent. It doesn't contradict itself. And it should be historically accurate. It's worthy of our time, taking some time to go through these three categories because there is much that will corroborate the Bible's claims in its trustworthiness. I've got one minute. I'm not going to get to that first one. We'll get to it next time. But we're going to look at the unity of message. It's coherent message. It's coherent. It's internally consistent. It's externally consistent. Bring your notes back because we will finish up the reliability of Scripture uh, when we come back in a couple weeks. Uh, and then we'll, we'll try to move into miracles, like I said, and, uh, and, we will, uh, and we'll, see, we'll see what happens. But let me just leave you with this tonight. Again, you can trust the Word of God. It is inerrant. It's incapable of error. And it is, or it's infallible, it's incapable of error, and it is inerrant. It contains no error. And so when you go home tonight, or maybe you've already had your Bible reading, or just remind yourself as you open that word of God the next time you do. This is from the mind of God to the heart of man. It's what he wants to tell us. And... It is true. From cover to cover. It doesn't have contradictions, although we'll look into some people who say, well, what about this or what about that? It, do, it's not, it doesn't have contradictions. It has a consistent message, and it's about one person, Jesus Christ. In fact, when I was getting my doctorate, uh, I had to read a book uh, by a, uh, an author. Uh, his name is uh, Chappelle, I think is how he pronounces it, out of, in uh, in uh, Missouri, and he said any time in his book, he said every time you preach, you should take a passage of scripture and make a beeline for the cross and see what it's telling you about Jesus Christ. Now, as dispensation, he was not a dispensationalist. As dispensationalist, sometimes that's a little more of a challenge. But the message is woven all throughout there that man is a sinner and in need of, in need of a savior. The Bible is true. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757 488 3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.